I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis, book of Genesis chapter 9, and I want to read the first seven verses with you in connection with Lord's Day 40. Genesis chapter 9. Here we hear God's word as follows. Hear the word of the Lord with me. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat the flesh with, with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Thus far, the reading of the word. Would you now turn with me in the back of your, either in the back of your Trinity hymnal or else in the forms and, and the prayers book. In the forms and prayers book, we have it on page 247. And in the Psalter hymnal, it's on page 891. So 891 or 247. Lord's Day 40, question and answer 105, 106, and 107. And here we read as follows. And I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. What is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, or looks, or my look or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds, and I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with a sword. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No. (coughs) By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly towards them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it in the creeds and confessions of the church. May God once again add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here with me in Bowmanville, Clearly, the sixth commandment is directed against killing people. But the formulation of this commandment is very general. Do not kill. The commandment doesn't tell us, it doesn't specify who or what is not to be killed. 
But obviously this commandment is directed at the protection of human life. Nevertheless, I want to take this opportunity in this context to make some observations about plant and animal life as well before moving on to discuss human life. I believe we are beginning to see some things in our culture and on occasion even in our church circles which have no basis in scripture related to a very bad interpretation of this commandment. The sixth commandment forbids killing another person. That's clear. But why is that? Why may we not simply decide to kill a person? We know that man is created by God and it is often suggested that therefore God owns us and we may not take the life of one created as God's workmanship. But can that be the answer or at least the complete answer? Is it because a person is a creation of God and therefore we are forbidden to take a human life? Perhaps. But in that case, plants and animals are also creatures of God. Yet to mankind in paradise, God gave permission to eat the plants of the field and the fruit of the trees. Concerning animals, we read that after the flood, God gave men permission to eat their meat. And, and, and so the farmer harvests grain and the butcher slaughters animals, not because these activities are self-evidently permissible and natural, but because the creator of all life has granted mankind permission to do these things. You see, God cares for every living thing. Along with man, animals and plants receive their food and drink from God. We know that, and you can read about that, especially in Psalm 104 and Matthew chapter 6. Plants and animals receive God's separate attention. Alongside the care he devotes to mankind, God clothes the flowers, even ordinary flowers of the field. He clothes them with a grandeur that surpasses even Solomon's rich, rich, richly colored robes. God supplies animals with a strength and cleverness that should make men modest. Crocodiles and elephants are imposing creatures of God, according to Job 40. Scripture tells us that the wild donkey laughs at all, the, at all the urban commotion, roaming as he does across the mountains, not listening to a driver's shout, Job 39. And do not the ants show us a zeal that can serve as an example for the slothful person? Go to the ants, you sluggard. But no matter how much the life of plants and animals is intertwined with human life, Plants and animals exist, first of all, for the glory of God, and then for human benefit. And so we must avoid reacting against the misuse of creation by putting other created creatures on a pedestal, elevating them in an unbiblical way. To choose to become a vegan or a vegetarian out of respect for the animal that needs to be killed or used is to seriously, seriously misinterpret God's own word. We need to have some serious discussions with any friend or family member who believes the need to honor animals in that way. Congregation, despite what the environmentalists such as Greenpeace and the PETA people will tell you, trees may be cut and animals may be slaughtered. There is no biblical basis for vegetarianism, especially when this lifestyle is propagated out of reverence for life or love for animals or respect for the environment. Even less acceptable is the attempt to use scripture to oppose animal experimentation. 
medical remedies, research techniques, and modern surgery would never have reached their modern effectiveness without experimentation on live animals. Plants, trees, and animals may serve our needs both for our food and for our health, and they were intended by God to be used as such. To suggest that man spare the environment and the animals for the creature's sake is to make ourselves wiser than God. We need to understand that it is good and not wrong to use living creatures for man's benefit. They were created. They were created by God for that very purpose. But in the first commandment, we have seen how God safeguarded in the first commandment his own glory. He was concerned about the honor of his sovereignty, his worship, his name, and his day. The fifth commandment then began a a certain transition. We were commanded to submit to earthly authority since all authority is given by God. And it is through these authority obedience structures that God chooses to rule us and to provide an orderly society. And now beginning in the sixth commandment and through to the tenth, we are to see how God provides for the security and the physical well-being of men. The sixth commandment is is for the protection of man's person, thou shalt not kill. The seventh commandment guards the sanctity and the good of man's family, thou shalt not commit adultery. The eighth commandment is to protect man's substance and possessions, thou shalt not steal. The ninth commandment is for the protection of his good name and reputation. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And then finally in the tenth commandment, as it were, God sets a strong fence around the entire law by not only prohibiting outward crimes, but forbidding also inward motions of evil within the heart and the mind. Thou shalt not covet. Although in some sense, some restricted sense, It may be possible to discipline oneself to keeping the first nine. The tenth is impossible without a born-again heart. The tenth commandment addresses the condition of the heart and is now the first of these five commandments that we want to consider this afternoon, namely, thou shalt not kill. Our confession speaks about these things, and I administer God's word to you this afternoon following the leading of the catechism by using as my theme, honoring human life. We want to examine the contents of the commandment, first of all, by defining who is our neighbor. Then we want to consider the commandment's negative prohibition, and then we want to consider its positive requirements. So honoring human life, defining who is our neighbor, the negative prohibition that thou shalt not And then we will consider the positive requirement, thou shalt. Congregation, inflation in our country is running rampant. Anyone who has a variable rate mortgage, one who needs to buy a house or even just needs to feed a family has become painfully aware that the cost of living continues to increase dramatically. And yet, ironically, it seems that the cost of human life keeps coming down. Life is cheap. The Bible says thou shalt not kill, but man has found a variety of ways to break that commandment. And what's even worse is that we're becoming used to this horrible waste of life. We're almost becoming desensitized to it. Murder and bloodshed happen so frequently they almost become desensitized to it all. We begin to take for granted that murder is a part of life. 
But what if a person does not feel guilty with respect to this commandment? I think it is correct to say that although most people will accept a measure of guilt against most of the commandments, most people also refuse to see that they are guilty of breaking this particular commandment. Most people refuse to acknowledge that by nature we are murderers. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Murder me? Never. Oh, lie maybe, steal maybe, maybe even commit adultery, but kill? No, never. How dare you accuse me of such a thing? Oh, I may not be perfect, but I certainly am not guilty of murder. But suppose a man has never killed anyone, not even by accident or in an act of war. Would he then be free from breaking this commandment? Are his hands then clean? Perhaps when reading only the commandment. However, when we listen to our Lord Jesus Christ explaining the commandment in 1 John 3, we would have to say that someone who has never committed an actual murder could and probably is guilty of breaking also this commandment. Jesus says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. In the sight of God, then, we're all in this thing together. Our Lord teaches us that hatred for one another is the root of murder, and therefore he forbids hatred. My dear people, God, we need to understand this. Animosity towards one another may not make us criminals before the civil magistrate, but to harbor animosity towards our neighbor does make us guilty of murder before the face of God. It would be the burden of my own pastor's heart that this biblical truth is not always fully understood among us as church. If it is understood, then it is often sinfully rejected, and either way, we stand before the Lord as murderers. And therefore, it is urgent that we once again listen to the word of God on this matter. It is an undeniable fact that our world and our culture is being attacked and that it is eroding at an alarming rate. I offer for your consideration just a few short decades ago, abortion was considered a crime in the land. It was murder. Euthanasia was a word not even whispered among men and women. But what of all that today? Speaking of my knowledge of the history in Canada, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler declares war on the law of the land. He opens an abortion clinic and openly defies and challenges the law. And initially the nation is shocked, and a hue and a cry goes up in protests. Several years of discussion follow. Finally, a compromise is struck. Abortion will be legally allowed, but only under strict supervision. Guidelines are established to allow abortion only under the supervision of doctors and even then only in the case where a mother's health is threatened by the pregnancy and then yet only in certain accredited hospitals and only after approval by a committee of doctors. Some churches, even reformed Christian churches, were satisfied. Although the church needed to subtly uh, subtly, uh, redefine what she meant by murder, She felt that a concession was needed to prevent further erosion. The political left did not get all that it wanted, and the right had to give up some more more than it was comfortable doing, but the matter was solved, right? Hardly. Just a few short years later, and the right has had to give up 
all of their position. The committees are gone. The restrictions are gone. And abortion is an acceptable state-sanctioned and state-funded method of birth control. And in just a few decades, we have become desensitized to the whole matter. 74,000 babies aborted in 2020 in Canada. Recently, one of the major news stories on TV was the celebration of the anniversary of abortion on demand. And if you watched carefully those reports, you could see the smiling face of Satan as he rubs his hand in glee and stood victorious in the world. The whole world has come to accept murder as a way of life. The cost of living keeps going up. The cost of life keeps going down. Then also, a few short years ago, euthanasia was considered a crime. Doctors swore an oath that they would never participate in such a thing. But again, the right makes certain uneasy concessions to the left. Dr. Jack Kevorki and openly and blatantly travels from state to state arranging assisted suicides and reports it to the press. He was ultimately convicted, but in the meantime, the liberal left put forth a bill they called Death with Dignity, or more commonly known as Euthanasia. Unbelievers such as Sue Rodriguez in British Columbia, assisted by her equally unbelieving and gay member of Parliament, Sven Robinson, mounted a passionate television campaign to change the law. Suddenly, doctors are beginning to speak, and they confess that out of compassion, they've been assisting suicides for years behind the scenes. The gloves came off, the war was on, you know the outcome. The law protecting life was deemed to be barbaric. New laws had to be crafted, and now men and women can choose to die with dignity at the hands of a doctor. And now even young people who are simply tired of life can ask to be euthanized even without parental permission or even parental knowledge. Over 10,000 people were euthanized in 2021 in Canada. People of the world has come to believe that abortion and euthanasia are morally just because the standard of life is now measured in accordance with what the world determines to be a certain norm of quality. If a certain life is not desired or livable, it is then decided that the quality of life would be a hardship either for the mother or for the particular patient, and so that life should be terminated mercifully. That's the compassionate thing to do. To do otherwise would be inhumane, says the world. And Satan rubs his hands in glee. But, but, but all of that murder is the logical consequence of abandoning God. We are told in scripture that our times are in God's hand. We are told that the numbers and the quality of our days are determined not by man but by the Lord God. Oh, indeed, life may not be easy for the single mom. It may not be easy for those who languish for years with an incurable, debilitating disease, but life, life is and remains a free, sovereign gift of God, which only he is free to give or to take. The world does not understand this truth because the world does not know God. 
The world has long ago shut their Bible, stopped up their ears, and banished God from the land. And consequently, being ignorant of God's truth, the world is therefore ignorant of the cause and the effect relationship of sin in the world. And the world then tries to remedy her problems with band-aids rather than with radical surgery. The world fails to search out the root of her problem, and consequently, the makeshift solutions are temporary and ineffective and will culminate or only add to the world's misery. And people go, when we read the commandment and the commentary on it in the catechism, then we understand that the focus is on a prohibition against killing our neighbor. But that then, first of all, begs the question as to who is our neighbor? The question is significant and is usually answered by saying, well, that everyone is our neighbor. And that is indeed true. However, we need to walk carefully here. Such a quick answer, such a glib answer with no further explanation can leave much room for misunderstanding and can also make it far too simple for us to avoid our obligation. You see, as long as our neighbor is defined in vague and general terms, then our consciences are easily soothed with respect to fulfilling our obligation to love our neighbor. When we simply hold that the whole world is our neighbor, then we convince ourselves that by giving towards a mission cause, when we contribute financially to some some work being done in a far-off land, an unknown country, or even a project closer to home, then it is easy to convince ourselves that we have expressed our love for our neighbor. It's so easy to love everybody. But the commandment is much more specific than that. The commandment is much more personal than that. When the Bible speaks of loving our neighbor, it out of necessity includes everyone in the world, but it is still required of us to make further distinctions. You see, it is an impossibility for each and every person in the world to love each and every other person in the world. We understand that. Even when we support all kinds of mission work, there are still billions of people in the world whom we never reach. We understand that. Our first obligation then is towards those with whom we come into contact in our daily walk of life. It is to love those who cross our path. (coughs) My neighbor is the man with whom I work. My neighbor is the man with whom I do business. It is the person waiting upon me at the grocery store. It is the student in my classroom. It is the man who has built his house next to me and who lets his radio blast while I'm trying to sleep. It is that man, that woman, or that child that crosses your path during every ordinary day of living. We have a specific obligation towards those that we do not have in the same sense with every other person in the world. But even having made that distinction, having brought it even closer to home, Scripture demands that we delineate even further. You see, Scripture demands that we love everyone indeed, but then Scripture teaches us to focus on those who share our world daily indeed, But then the scripture goes on to admonish us to love especially those in the household of faith with us. That means, indeed, our own household. Mother, father, children, wives, husband, but more yet. That means also your brothers and sisters who sit in the pew with you on Sundays. It means that we are to love the members of the congregation, first of all, in a particular way, even before we attempt to love the people in the greater community or in the world. In fact, Scripture teaches us that those who do not care for their families are to be considered worse than unbelievers. 
We need to take that warning to heart. If we refuse to love those who are our immediate neighbors in the pew on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoons, if you insist on hating them or slandering them and ruining their good name and their reputation, then according to the Bible, you are not only guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, you are to be considered to be worse than an unbeliever. We need to understand that. My dear precious people of God, I do not dare to speak of Salem, for I do not know you well enough. But I am in churches all over Ontario every Sunday. And I cannot even begin to describe to you the many churches that have been torn apart because brothers and sisters refuse to make concessions to one another in love during the hardship caused by covid It would be my personal conviction that this commandment, the sixth commandment, has been broken more frequently than any other during the time we lived under government restrictions in the way that we interacted with one another in the congregation. My dear people of God, during COVID, an elder of one of the churches, I beg your indulgence for just a minute, but during COVID, one of of the elders in one of the churches took me home between services. And we talked about the disturbances in the church and the, and the turmoil in the churches and the tension in the churches. And he told me a little story. It was a true story. I want to share it with you. He told me he has a lot of land. He has a large land holding on his farm. And in a corner of his vast property, he had a very large pond. He says, it's almost a small lake. He said his kids used to swim in it and now his grandchildren paddle canoes on it. He said it was a beautiful sight. But one year he said they suffered an extreme drought and the water began to dry up. Before long he said we saw tree stumps and then tractor tires and car parts. Junk, 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 unsightly junk. And he says that junk was always there but we couldn't see it until the drought brought it to light. He said, Pastor, the same is true with all the tension we're now experiencing in the churches. The rottenness, he correctly called it, the rottenness we now see in the church was always there. We just didn't see it until COVID brought it to light. What he meant was the tension among brothers and sisters that erupted during COVID was in the heart of the people in the pew all along. It just took COVID to expose it. The accusations, the bitterness, the denials, the refusal to submit to government or consistory authority were not the consequence of COVID, oh no. They already existed in the recesses of the human hearts in the congregation, and COVID simply brought it to light. It's all starting to fit together, isn't it? In his law, God does not just look at the outward appearance of murder. Rather, God examines the heart. And now the confession points us to the root of murder. We read of envy, hatred, anger, revenge. Indeed, we know of senseless killings without apparent motive, but usually murder is precipitated by these emotions, which in Scripture are called the root of murder. People of God, when hearing a sermon on this commandment, we're usually inclined to defend ourselves and absolve ourselves. The commandment is clear, thou shalt not kill. I have never killed, ergo, 
this commandment doesn't speak to me. And so we close our ears because this commandment doesn't speak to me. And yet we would be tragically amiss to take that approach to this commandment. Scripture points its finger at us and boldly declares that we are all murderers by nature. By nature we are inclined to hate God and our neighbor. And this hatred, according to the Bible, makes us guilty of murder. We need to understand that. Remember the words of our Lord in Matthew 5, when we hear him say, You have heard it said of old to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable of, in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Again, the apostle John teaches, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. I wonder if we always understand that in the connection with the sixth commandment when it's read, thou shalt not kill. I wonder if we then recognize that we're all guilty of murder. In other words, murder is not necessarily a specific act. It is a prior condition of the heart. According to the Lord, murder does not necessarily include a conscious act of killing. It can mean to simply hate our neighbor. And such murder can take many different forms. The Lord speaks first of all about being angry with our brother without a cause. And remember with me now the distinction made earlier and our obligation to love first of all those within the household of faith. And now we hear our Lord saying that to bear anger, hatred, envy, or a vengeful spirit against a brother in that household with us is to commit murder, making us subject to the flames of hell. Simply put, to harbor anger or hatred in our hearts towards brothers and sisters in the Lord makes one worthy of eternal condemnation. Does that statement seem to be too harsh? Bear with me so that we can understand precisely what the Lord is doing and teaching us here. <clears throat> the Lord speaks here of brothers and sisters, meaning then men and women within the household of faith. And to them Christ says, if you hate your brother, you are worse than an unbeliever. You are worthy of eternal condemnation. Understand well with me. To make ourselves worthy of eternal judgment in connection with this commandment does not require an actual murder. It simply means that we have to have in our hearts or give expression uh, with our conduct, anger, envy, hatred, desire for vengeance, if that is there, then we stand condemned. And if we continue in that anger without repentance, we stand eternally condemned. Thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother is guilty of murder and shall be in danger of the fires of hell. What a tremendous privilege and blessing it is then when God gives us a week of preparation to give serious consideration to the condition of our heart in relation to our relationship to one another. And finally, the catechism would teach us that included in this commandment is also the whole matter of suicide. We read, I may not harm myself nor willfully expose myself to danger. And people God, we're confronted today with a great increase in the number of suicides and in itself that ought not to surprise us. Empty, meaningless lives are ended in despair. They see no other way out, and they have failed to consider the afterlife. And so people take it upon themselves to take their own lives. 
When the Lord says, thou shalt not kill, it's clear that he is addressing not only the taking of another man's life, but it includes also the taking of our own lives. We may not kill our neighbor, but neither may we kill ourselves. We need to be sensitive and careful here. I urge great caution when passing judgment on suicide. We do not fully understand what drives people, sometimes even Christian people, to such depths of despair, but we need to remain firm in rejecting suicide and seeing it for what it really is. It is a denial of God's sovereign right to determine life and death. We are not given the prerogative to judge the hearts of men, but yet we must reject as sinful acts, acts such as suicide, abortion, and euthanasia. People God, the pattern of love that God requires of us toward our fellow man is perfectly revealed in the cross. We find there two amazing features. First of all, we see there that God loved us and revealed his unfathomable love in the death of Christ while we were yet enemies. He loved us while we hated him. And secondly, we see the element of God's self-sacrificing love. The Son of God lays down his life for the sheep, as John writes, here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. For those of us now, who have been redeemed by that blood spilled on Golgotha. We are to exemplify or pattern our love for one another after the example of God's love demonstrated to us. We must love our neighbor, not because he is a nice guy, not because he belongs to our circle of friends, not by being superficial, but by fulfilling the will of God concerning him. We shall respect his person. We shall respect his reputation, his good name, and we will promote his well-being. In fact, if necessary, we will even sacrifice our own well-being, even our life for him, in order that our neighbor might be saved. Then, in the fellowship of the church, the love for neighbor reaches its full realization. My dear precious people of God gathered here with me in Bowmanville this afternoon, we have all, or at least we claim all, to have tasted of the love of God. And that love has permeated our hearts and it gives shape to all of our life and living and conduct. And here we've heard God say, Beloved, if God so loved us, we must love one another. For this is love indeed, when the love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness of God in Christ has been experienced, then the Christian, being so overwhelmed and filled with the love of God, will himself never be filled with bitterness, anger, and malice towards a neighbor. When he is reviled, he will not revile in turn. When he is smitten, he will not smite again. When he is slandered slandered and hated, he will respond in love. Such a person has heard the voice of his master. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. 
and pray for them that despise you, that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. Shall we pray?